0: So uh, I get to work one day, and I see everybody's rushing towards the conference room. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, there was a mandatory meeting. I have to get there as soon as possible because, you know, the conference room is going to fill up very quickly. So I get to the conference cro- room. I'm sorry. I get to the corner, and I kind of get ready for the meeting to start. Slowly, the room starts to pack. That I mean, there's 100, 150 people on the same floor, and everyone's ma- it's mandatory. Everyone has to be there. So the room starts to get packed. All the chairs are filled. People are pressing up on the walls, sitting on the vents, and people are starting to huddle around me. And it's you know it's getting really tight. All of a sudden, the uh, CFO walks in. Now I'm a junior analyst at this time, so I really don't know what's going on. So he's there and he's talking about last year's revenues, and he's talking about how we did a poor job, pretty much as a company. And he's starting to get heated, and everyone's starting to get quiet. As you know, when when managers start you know getting angry, start screaming. People start speaking less so you can you can hear a pin drop in the room. all you can hear is just him getting angry. So as he's speaking, all of a sudden, I mean it's early morning, I realize you know I have to go to the bathroom you know I'm like my stomach's turning and I'm like, oh my God, I gotta go to the bathroom so you can imagine he's angry, the room's packed, and I'm in a wheelchair and it's a power wheelchair, so it's not like I could just roll out, you know I would have to move out people are out of the way. people are surrounding me so no one can even see me at this point. But I have to go. Like, and he's angry. Uh, all of a sudden, at this point, I-, I swear it had to be the perfect timing. He said, I remember he goes, and what do you guys have to say for yourselves? And at that point, I turned on my wheelchair at the exact same time. <laughs> so all you hear is, din, din. <laughs> and he goes, What the hell was that? <laughs> so everyone just turns towards me. So now the room is divided, it's split. It's a clear line of sight between me and the CEO. And he's never seen me before because I'm not important. And he's yelling and everyone's looking at me and looking at him. I'm looking at them and I'm looking at him. So everyone's just looking around at what, how are we going to react to this? So I have my hands up, like in my head, I'm explaining something to him, but I'm not, like words aren't coming out. I'm just like, uh, right. So then he puts his hands up. So he puts his hands up and he goes, I'm so sorry. It's like, if you need to leave, please, please go ahead. And I'm like, all right yeah you know? so i kind of turn out and you know you see people jumping on the tables trying to get out of my way you know th- the red sea's parting <laughs> and i'm rolling out of this conference room and everyone's just mumbling you can just hear the mumbling behind you because you know like what just happened and i get out to the bathroom and i had that thug life music going out in my mind <laughs> i was like man i just owned my cfo and i was like maybe it's not so bad to be in a
1: wheelchair you know
0: i think it's, it's it, you know you can have some perks that come with that so it was, it was a pretty cool funny experience for me Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mum My name is Mohammed. My name is Amr. My name is Sim. Today we have a very good friend of ours, Omar Zaman. He's here to help create awareness for Muslims with disabilities. He volunteers for an organization named Musin. Omar, Jazak Khair for being here. Oh uh, Yaqum, Jazak Khair for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Welcome. Uh, uh yeah, I mean just in my story, just kind of wanted to you know, it's sometimes what happens is that you know, we even people with disabilities kind of forget sometimes that they have disabilities, right? <laughs> when I'm sitting there looking at my CFO, I'm, I'm thinking like anybody else would think. But the way, the lens he's looking at me from was completely different. And I think, uh, you know, the most important thing today I want to kind of talk about uh, along with Mohsen is just perspective. is how the community views us uh, as people with disabilities and special needs and how we view ourselves. I think it's very important to kind of touch upon that. And uh, it's something that is very near and dear to me but it's so, impo- so you
1: you volunteer for musin
0: yeah it's okay. an, it's an organization that was actually started by uh, Sheikh Umar Soleiman who is actually the Imam of Valley Ranch Majid down in uh, Texas and it's actually close to the Dallas area so uh, Muslimsin actually stands for Muslims understanding and helping special education needs right that's the acronym for Musin and the idea is to create inclusion within the Muslim community awareness within the Muslim community uh, trying to get people with special needs back integrated back into the Muslim community and it's uh, one of I actually prior to this is important to know I didn't really work with other, any other organization it's kind of when I this is so near to me that when I whenever when I started and I heard about it I said this is something I need to do because I actually didn't always have a disability I have a form of muscular dystrophy that developed as I got older
1: for those who don't know can you explain that sure is-
0: yeah um I have a muscular dystrophy known as myoshi myopathy. Now I'm going to get scientific on you right it's now. It's a form
1: it's,
0: of distal mu- muscular dystrophy. Exactly, he same thing as hominopathy. it's a form of distal muscular dystrophy. It's uh called dysferlinopathy. So what dysferlin is is chemicals when you when your muscles break down, it builds those muscles back up. So when speaking to my doctors, neurologists, they told me that when I hit adolescence, that chemical stopped being developed by my body. So every muscle that I had built up at that point started to break down. But as Sim pointed out, it's, it's a distal. So it started off with my calves and my forearms. So it didn't immediately affect all the muscles in my body at one time. It kind of just systematically shut down as it got to- closer to the core of my body. Uh, alhamdulillah, it doesn't affect my heart or my face. You know, anything of uh, the core of my body, my abdomen, my back muscles are, alhamdulillah, still strong. But it was all all in my limbs. So I actually ended up in a wheelchair, uh, I'm going to date myself now. I'm, I'm about when I was 27, 28. I'm 31 now. So, But but it started off from using a cane to a walker, and I slowly got to the point where I had to use uh, a wheelchair. So the reason it's important that I wanted to work with Muffson is because of the fact that I never even thought about people that had disabilities until I became someone that had a disability. And this is, I mean, I'm not going to say that I always had that thought and that compassion towards Muslim brothers and sisters or anybody, not just Muslims, but that that had any type of special need. It was just the the story of Muslim and how I came to know about them was was very interesting. Um very briefly I went to their dinner last in September of 2015. And I went there when someone told me, oh Sheikh Umar Solehman's talking Mufti Kamani is talking. And I was like, all right, this is great. I love those guys. I didn't even know what it was about until someone pointed it out. It's for people with disabilities. I was like, this is a hat trick. I get food, great lectures, and, you know, it's for people with disabilities, so I'm going to go. And I swear, I I went there with the mentality that they're going to give me money or something. Like, you know, walking like, hey, this guy has disability, pay him. You know, go buy a wheelchair, buy something else. You know, it was literally like what I could take from Wilson. Like, that was my mentality going in. And there were such great speakers and not, The speakers I referred to are great in their own right and they're amazing shiukh and ulema. But the people that I never heard of, I never seen and majority people have never heard of, were the people that really got to me. They're people that were directly like aunts and uncles, parents, brothers and sisters that were directly impacted with disabilities. And their speeches were literally, it, it it shook me a lot where when I left the dinner, it was not what, can Musson do for me is what can I do for Musson? And since uh, November of 2015, uh, I officially started working with them on, on various projects, and I'm alhamdulillah I'm still part of Team Musson in Chicago, and uh, I'm proud to be part of that. They're doing a lot of great things. I'm actually probably one of the least active volunteers. There's people that are doing immense amount of work. I'm talking about across across the U.S. Uh, I, I do everything pretty much from home. <laughs> Just, so, what does Musson exactly do for for people with disabilities, though? Uh, They do, uh, uh, they're trying to, it, as I mentioned, it started in 2014, so they're trying to build, Uh, you know, a lot of these programs up. So very quickly, they, they established a couple of Sunday school programs here in Chicagoland as well as in Houston. They have been crea- uh, using their resources to help uh, during big events like Isna Mass Iqna, as well as uh, Bayana Story Night, where they get people that can come and do sign language for those that have hearing impairments. They can get babysitting for uh, children with special needs so that parents can actually sit and enjoy and learn the ilm. Because, you know, with children that have autism, you know, sometimes parents cannot leave them alone and they need uh, special care. So they, then parents will not necessarily have the opportunity to go to lectures or go, or go to these big events like Isla and Iqna, because uh, they're constantly worried about, you know, their children. So Muslims trying to provide that type of convenience. Also, one of the biggest projects I feel is the, uh, Masjid certification program now what that is it's uh it's on their it's on their website but they're trying to get all the masjid Mosin certified now there's two things that help in my opinion this is this is my own opinion on how this will help inshallah the community is number 1 it will help build accommodations for people with special needs and number 2 it will help the community understand the needs of their community <laughs> so the masjid will understand well this is how many people that have disabilities within our community this is how many people need certain accommodations and i think it was it'll be an eye opening uh, you know project for the muslim ummah across the us and a project i'm working on specifically is, is just needs assessments where it takes 1 minute there's a link on the website and we can also it's also on twitter and facebook you fill it out and then that gives us an understanding and you can rank your your community 1 through 10 and and you know on accommodations on programs things of that nature and it gives us a sense So when we do approach these masjid, we can say, this is the voice of your community. This is what they're saying about your masjid. And this is what they're saying about your program. And this is how you can improve. And that is data they can't deny. And I think that's a very interesting and very, there's a lot of potential in that project. That's also one of many. Uh, alhamdulillah, there's a best buddies program where alham, they took all these beautiful children, mashallah, here in Chicago to Navy Pier where they got children with special needs and they paired them up with uh, other people and, uh, that were volunteers and took a bus to Navy Pier and they, 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 they had a blast. You know, all the, you can see these pictures on the website, on Facebook, as well as, you know, on, uh, on Twitter. You can follow them, uh, Alhamdulillah, they're just doing so much in the volunteer. It's all volunteer work for the most part. I mean, there's a couple of employees that are full time. You know, the director, uh, Juhi Tahir, who's on the website, who, uh, you know, uh, mashallah, I, I really enjoy working with. She's just helped me so much. As I said, I never worked with the organization before. So she really understood that I was wet behind the ears and I had a lot to grow. And, uh, and she did definitely help with that. So Mosin mashallah, is growing. It's going to continue to grow. I have faith that there's barakah in this, in this organization, inshallah. And, and I hope that everyone will either visit their site and try to volunteer or at least visit their booths when they're at uh, certain events. If, if you're there, you should definitely visit and stop by and talk, inshallah. What, uh, what, is, what do you think is the lack of in the Muslim community in regards to, uh, you know, people with disabilities? To be honest, I mean, besides the, you know, handicapped spaces where everyone parks and I mean, you don't really hear much about it. You know, I, I I try to be a little bit more objective when it comes to that. I, I've as As I mentioned, I was diagnosed at 17, so at that time I used to get so mad because I wasn't always in a wheelchair. I remember one time I was parking at a a local masjid, and I didn't have a cane at this time, but I had the placard, the handicap placard, because I was formally diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, and one of the parking lot volunteers, he started yelling at me, like, you use your grandmother's Placard, you know, you're parking here. It's for adults and people. And I'm, I'm trying to explain to him. And I was so like, I didn't want to get into a fight. So I moved my car. So that kind of validated his point, but I didn't, I don't want to fight with him. He honestly thought that he won that argument. I went home and I was so mad and I told my dad. And my dad was like, tell me who he is. You know, like he's about to go beat him up or something. Um, you know, it was kind of 50 50. I was like, I don't know what was happening to my dad. So I was like, I'm not going to tell you. Right? That was pretty big. Uh, so I, but then later on, it, you know, once I got a cane, even a police officer, you know, I'm born in 1984 and those placards, they actually punch in the last two digits of the year you're born. So it's eight and four. So the police officer came up to me because I didn't have a cane and I was actually working out at this time because I was trying to maintain the rest of my muscles in my body. And she's like, so you were born in 1948? And I'm like, no, I turned it around. I said, like, born 1984. <laughs> and she's like oh and then she ran in and she's like oh okay i'm sorry i'm like no it's fine it happens all the time because it wasn't apparent at that time so the thing with them going back to your initial question is that people right now the previous generation that came our parents they had to establish the masajid they had to establish the community and that was their main primary goal and they did an excellent job for it now i feel like this first generation muslims muslims born in this country that are having like they're having their children now, they have the platform to build on top of, to create awareness for people with disabilities, all type of awareness. Now, you're seeing all these movements that are happening where sisters are getting more involved in the masajid. Children are becoming more inclusive in the masajid. It's being... So even people... We're, we're like, jumping into this opportunity, like, yes, and we also want to include people with disabilities because there is a huge movement. So what I feel Majjahs need to do is, number one, you need to get involved. I think one of the greatest in my opinion, of the sunnahs of Rasulullah <laughs> was that he understood his sahaba. He understood the people he was leading. Right? And and if you want to be able to lead a community, you need to understand the various types of people in your community. If there are people that have disability, learn about that disability. And the only way to do that is to ask a question. I always tell people when they go to the Masjid, they get upset. You know, oh, we can't go for Eid, or we can't for Tarawih, we can't go for Jummah. They're going at times where it's very, very busy. I'm like go during zohr asr. Unfortunately, this is the reality of, a, of our community. Inshallah, will change that. You know, it's not as busy during the week. During these, you know, the the other salahs, that's when I typically go to the masjid and speak to the imams, and that's how they get to know me. And I've built my relationship through those channels by letting them know, hey, I'm part of your community. And this is what I have. And they, they've come to my house. I've spoken to them in their offices. I'm on text messages. So they're very much aware of my condition. So what, first and foremost, imams, I feel, need to um, start learning about the, the ummah that they're leading. And the second is the people need to start understanding the type of challenges you have and start working within the confines of the, of the community. We're not perfect. We have our, our, our facilities are not perfect. Uh, we, we, are, we also lack and are limited in the amount of money we have as a community. Here, at least in Chicagoland, subhanAllah, there's so many masjids, but there's a, there's a double-headed sword with that, that we need the funding to manage all of these masjids as well and get all the accommodations as well. So I think it's two parts. I think just like everything, you need to work together. People, caretakers and those with disabilities need to work with the masjid, and the masajids need to be open to understanding the different needs of their community and they shouldn't even hesitate. And I only, I only bring that up because I was talking to another member of the Muslim team. And she was telling me that she had mentioned to an imam that she wants this to be a topic of a khutbah. And he replied and said, well, how many people is this truly impacting? And, and I understand on the face value that he's thinking how many people is this impacting that have disabilities? And at first I defended him. I said, yeah, I guess he's right. There's bigger issues. People aren't praying. They're not, you know, they're, they're losing their iman. There's all these issues that are happening. And she was very smart and quick to make me understand that it's not a matter of disabilities. It's a matter of character. Character is the number one thing we need to, with, like, build to be good Muslims. I'm not a scholar. So, Allah am sitting
1: here? I mean, if you disagree with me, feel free to jump in. Well, <clears throat> speaking about... Character, you were not uh, a very practicing Muslim before your diagnosis. And can you talk about that journey, how you came to being a more practicing Muslim as you were diagnosed and as, as you were struggling with your diagnosis? Wow, yeah, that that's something that was a very long journey. Subhanallah,
0: it took me over ten years to get there. Uh, at first, because I I was raised in a very traditional. Pakistani family in Take It As You Way, but the it, the issue is that <laughs> we were practicing in the sense where we prayed salah, we read Quran, we did all, we did Jama but we didn't understand the core of it, the Iman aspect of it, the faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So we did these practices as is like formalities or rituals. And, and I say that very openly in the sense where, and I'm not trying to say it in a disrespectful way, where if you're praying without understanding why you're praying and you don't know who you're praying towards, and, and these are things that are very dangerous. So I would pray and I would say, oh, I'm doing all the right things as a Muslim. I'm a good Muslim. I pray, I, I pray my sadaqah, I do all these good things, I fast, and then boom, I got hit with a, a calamity. You know, I one day I'm, you know, 17 years old, I'm playing ball with everybody, and the next day I'm different. I'm not the same as everybody else. And in my mind, I was a pretty good person. I mean, I never hurt anybody. I was, I never, I tried not to be a bad son or a bad friend or a bad brother. I was, I was a pretty normal person. And all of a sudden, I looked as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was testing me in a way with, through a punishment. I kept questioning, you know, what did I do? I had like I, ex- I did this exercise for like three months where I would just keep going back. Who did I hurt? Who did I potentially say something to or do something to where Allah is punishing me for this? Hmm. And it was a very difficult thing. And then you and the normal no process of depression, you know, why is this happening to me? I was so angry. And you're angry at who when things happen to someone and is attributed to another person? Like you get in a car accident, somebody hit you. You go, okay, I'm mad at that person because they they did this to me. Who did this to me? You know, and, 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 and real, in in real in in realistic terms, I had no one to point a finger at, so I I was mad at my parents. I was mad at other friends that I had, because they're in my mind. I was being judgmental, like oh they're not they're not as good as I am, or they're they're worse than I am as a person or human being. Now, I don't even know you know in in their ins and outs, but I blamed like why didn't they get it? And and I and then I also then ultimately came to the fact that I believe Allah subhanahu wa taala, like why did He do this to me? It's just all the stuff that I've been hearing about love and mercy, all that is, this makes absolutely no sense. So character development comes from, I think, both aspects of it. Your tarbiyah as a child, we need to, this is another thing, going back to the mahasin thing, the more our children are exposed to other children that have special needs, the more their character is going to develop. And the other thing is, as if I had that, in the beginning, it was just, oh, just pray or do your Qur'an. It was never like, oh, why are we doing this? And it was not until I got hit by a test by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I, he, he guided me in his way to, to understand why this had to happen to me. I never would have seeked out
1: Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on my own. Uh, what what would you tell younger kids or anyone who's just been recently diagnosed with uh, a disability? How How do you... How do you tell yourself, let's put it like this, how 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 would you tell yourself if you could time travel back and and give, give yourself some advice?
0: You know what, Tim? That's an amazing question. I honestly think if I were to travel back right now yeah. and show that Umar Zaman everything that I have now and I have learned today, he would still wouldn't listen. <laughs> uh, the, it was a, a matter of just being receptive. I I didn't want to talk to anyone. I wanted to feel like the victim. I wanted to feel like I wanted the world to feel sorry for me. And but at the same time I had so much pride. Uh when people did do things for me, I was like, "No, I don't want your help." You know, it was very conflicting emotions I was going through. Now, ideally I would tell that person that you're not alone. Uh I mean, you have to talk to other people that have some form of disability. You're not always going go to go through the same challenges because even if you might have the exact same diagnosis, your financial situation will be different. Your parents' situation will be different. Every, there's different elements to everyone's life. But I wish I opened up to talking to other people. My mom and my father used to always say, Omar, go to these support groups and go talk to someone in the support group. And I would be like, no, they're not going to understand. And the reason behind that was because they were not Muslim. I was like, my issues are with faith, right? So because of that reason, I felt like, I, I felt like they're never going to understand me. And that's why, that's another thing what Muslim is doing, which I really like, is that they're creating a support group for people that, are, that have special needs that are, uh, that are Muslim. And they can understand not only the physical challenges, but the, the faith challenges that comes along with that, inshallah. And so number one, definitely talk to other people. Don't isolate yourself, because when you're alone with your thoughts and shaitan is there to reinforce those thoughts, you're in for a world of trouble. And number two, you need to accept the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a better plan ultimately. Now that is very difficult. That's why I said if I went back to you know, fifteen years from go back fifteen years, that person would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about, and you're crazy. And you might look like me, but you're fatter and <laughs> you're you're not me, you know? Like it would have been something like I would have completely created a reason not to listen <laughs> to that person. So the reality was that uh you have to keep that open mindedness. And that comes from when children I have children, my, my son's seven. I tell him now about, you know, Qadr of Allah. Like, things can change rapidly. You're going to get tested. I keep telling him that life is not supposed to be easy. Jenna is not meant to be easy. And my parents and my wife are like, are you crazy? You know, you're scaring him. I'm like, <laughs> he needs to understand this. And my experience and whatever little knowledge I have formulates my opinions. That's everybody. And the reality of it is that we have to start teaching our children about the Qadr of Allah Subhanahu, wa ta'ala at a very young age, because you can't. It's in the Quran that if you believe in Allah Subhanahu, wa ta'ala, you say that you believe in Allah Subhanahu, wa ta'ala, you will be tested. Now, that's paraphrasing Ayat. So I don't like doing that, so I'm gonna send over Sheikh. I'm here to, to no, correct I, me. I, I, one beautiful thing before we even get into that,
2: you were mentioning that you mentioned you, you you explained to your son the Qadr of Allah. Now, coming from you, that's something that is amazing, and I'll tell you why. Izzeddin Abdul Salam has a book. About the benefits of trials and tribulations, right? And the benefits and trials of tribulations. The first thing that it does is number one. I think the first thing on his list was that it destroys arrogance and the tendency of arrogance itself. When Allah subhanahu wa taala tests you with something, obviously everyone's tested with different things, some more severe and some in less in severity, right? But Allah subhanahu wa taala la yikalifullahu nafsan illa wusaha, Right? Allah doesn't put anybody through a test. Unless that they can, or that, unless they can handle it, right, or that they're capable of handling it. So, when you're explaining to your son, and this is what this is why it reminded me is that one of the benefits out of twenty uh, benefits of trials and tribulations is that when somebody is also going through a trial and tribulation, you are going to be able to explain it to them and have rahma on them. Number one, you're going to be able to explain to them, listen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a decree. The second thing you're going to be able to explain to them or, or share with them is the feeling of having that type of, of depression or being down uh, you know, in that situation. Um, because a lot of people, they don't feel for other people when they're going through trials and tribulations. But somebody who's been through trials and tribulations, and spent especially someone who's been through enormous trial and tribulation, now they can genuinely speak to somebody. Right? And there's two levels of that. One level is, oh, you know what, everything's gonna be okay. Allah's gonna take care of everything for you. Right? That's one. The other is you know what, let's sit down and talk. And you wholeheartedly want to spend all night talking to this person. And you will probably lose sleep if you're if you're trying to explain to that older Omar Zaman, for instance, is he not understanding? You're probably going to lose sleep because now you actually genuinely want this person understanding and you love him for the sake of Allah, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even have to be uh, a Muslim. It can be anybody. You know, you, you genuinely see something and you, know, you av- obviously have to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at that time, you know, um and there's 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 many ways uh that somebody's benefiting from these
1: trials and tribulations omar um how how was your family affected by this initially i mean we always talk about the disabled person and what they're going through but tell us about how the family's feeling at this time
0: you know sim uh, i think it's not until i became a father where i realized that the test was not It was not my test. Wasn't the hardest. It had to be from my parents. It was my mom. She told me, you know, that three months prior to my diagnosis, she had a clean bill of health. Alhamdulillah. And three months after, she got diabetes because of the stress. And the the tone of the house changed. People stopped talking. It wasn't happy anymore. We were talking. People were just talking about the future. Who's gonna marry him? What are we going to do for his future? How is he going to make money? Uh, You know, all of these things. And, and like I said to you, it's not that my parents didn't have faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a natural reaction to uh, something that changes your life. That's what they call it, a life-changing event. And they're trying to think about how to secure my future. And, you know, my mom and my dad, they were so worried about me that they were ready to kind of just put me... Well, not so much my mom. My dad was ready to put me in a bubble. Don't do anything. We're going to take care of you. Let's get things figured out. And it was my mom who kind of pushed me to say, no, you know, you need to keep moving and you need to do as much as you can while you can still do it. That's actually, well, I got married when I was 20. That was one of the reasons I got married so young is because they realized that, oh, he's not going to have the same luxury as other people where he can wait till he's 25 or 26. And on a side note, you know, when I was at the dinner, one of the things that Mustin mentioned was a matrimonial service for people with special needs. And the place erupted. Literally erupted, like, like, Noman Khan walked into the room. It was nuts. <laughs> like, people, I'm like, what's going on? I was looking at my cousin who was, w- I was with him and I was like, dude, I've been married for 10 years. You guys are sure they know what they're getting into? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just jokingly. But then I, I sat and actually reflected on it and said, subhanAllah. Allah subhanAllah blessed me with a wife and two children. Allah and these God. people, they're, this is not like, they were not young. You know, they're, some of them are old, you know, late 30s, early 40s, even, even late 20s. And, the horizon for them is, is very bleak. You're like, will I ever get married? And I know that SubhanAllah, I, my parents saved me from that feeling by having the foresight of doing these type of things. But immediately they were talking about things that to me at that point were not relevant. I felt like, I'm 17. Why are you talking about me getting married? And why are you talking about my future? Worry about me right now. Why don't you guys ask how I'm feeling? And the other thing that came from that, sim, which I felt, which added to the problems of Iman... Was everybody asked about my physical needs. Nobody asked about my spiritual needs. Nobody asked nobody even thought that I would question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, and I don't understand how you can't. You if you um there are people out there that are greater are far greater than I am. The thing is though so I, I, I I'm pretty confident there are people that haven't questioned Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But for me, I feel like the first thing I would question is why did this happen to me? And then you question your creator. Immediately, that's like the next question that comes after that. So, my parents' reaction to it, it was, I would say that they, alhamdulillah, they did their best. But it hit, it came out of left field. No family history. I was playing basketball. I was doing every, I mean, I played ball with Sheikh Amir when I was younger, you know. And he was, you know, so I, he knows that I I was an active person. uh, And the reality is that I changed overnight. I wasn't like everyone else anymore. And it's so different in a, so, in a in an environment where we're so competitive with jobs and getting married and the houses we have. And I literally felt like the competitive advantage, I just had none anymore. I was behind the eight ball all the time. All my friends are going to be ahead of the game. And yeah, it, to, someone can think, why are you even thinking about that? Of course, you're going to think about that. I got diagnosed right after high school. So what are you thinking about college, career? Are you going to go to in state college, out of state college, you know, you're not thinking about, am I going to be in a wheelchair in four years? So the mindset and the in the platform completely changed for me. And my parents uh, didn't know what to do because they never even thought about this. There were s- small little signs that I had prior to even being diagnosed that, inshallah, I'll share before we, we leave here. So for anyone else that might have these signs, but it, they didn't think anything of it. Because what, I had the same symptoms throughout my days, where my legs would hurt, they would burn, things like that. But then when I'm hanging out with you guys, I wouldn't really address them. I wouldn't care. I'd would just still hang out. But when it came to like doing vacuum or mowing the lawn, I was like, oh, you know, my legs are hurting or my legs are burning. Yeah, so I think
2: that, you are mentioning even when you were playing basketball, like you would jump and you you, you said you like. You wouldn't be able to jump, and people would think that you just don't know how to jump, right. or no, he's being lazy. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm not hustling. That's You're what not hustling, say, you know. And I'm like, I am jumping though. No. Like, it was it was very difficult. I couldn't jump over a credit card, literally. But the you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do anything. But in my mind, I'm like, because that to me that's normal. I don't know what it feels like to be in
1: somebody else's body, right? So whatever I've experienced up to this point is this is how everyone... You need to have a pep talk with some seven-footers in basketball <laughs> who refuse to jump. <laughs>
0: Seriously, man. They were blessed. No, no. The reality was that I... So when I would start doing even playing sports in my mind i'm like man i'm jumping so high and i, I wish i could actually see have like that out of body experience and what, <laughs> see what i was actually doing yeah. And it's like he's just sliding his feet around like <laughs> no but, but the reality was that uh my parents would just be like you're just being lazy you know you don't want to do this work you know when you want to go with your friends you're gonna go with your friends and you know i was hiding a lot of that pain when i was hanging out with my friends i wouldn't mention it you know i just took some ibuprofen and moved on with my day but that's why it didn't make sense to my parents that one you know half the day you're fine and the other half when we ask you to do anything you're not fine, so I think communication is very important at that point, but realistically my my parents were amazing i we they have we still till this day have discussions and talk sometimes about the what ifs like what if we caught this early what if we talked about it more and alhamdulillah, now we've gotten to that point where we just we kill it I tell them that I mean my parents ask forgiveness of me. Can you imagine that? You know, I, I'm, I'm your parents coming to you and say, "We're sorry, you know, that we didn't catch this earlier." And to me, that is like what? It, it was it was mind boggling. How many of us can say that your parents come to you and apologize? So oh, man. Subhanallah. and, and it, it's something I remember when I used to, my legs used to hurt. I would lie down in bed, and my nanny to so that for those that no don't know what that means my mother's mother would sit at the foot of the bed, and she would press my legs. Hmm. The, for for a grandson, that is very difficult to have your grandmother press your legs wow. and I would pull my legs away, and she's like, "No, you need to let me do this you know I look at her, her granddaughter, Jenna, she's you know she passed away a few years ago, but I mean, still um I... these are the type of things my family went through you know and and it was very hard for them to to ex- not not accept it but figure out you know what to do next
1: at at what point there's I'm sure there's no way you there's no finality you getting over a hurdle but when was the major progression where you finally stopped blaming Allah Taala and you know kind of started moving on with your life
0: hmm. that was wow
1: how long did it take
0: it took me 11 years oh, or, wow. 11 years yeah subhanAllah, subhanallah. Uh, so I have it I'm going on three four years now mashallah where i am gotten past that part yeah and just to add some color I or at that point when I was still doubting Allah Taala, of having problems I was married Uh, And I did have a son. So one of the biggest fears that my parents also had was that my negativity towards my Lord would not rub off on my child. Because I wasn't actively practicing Islam at the time because I was so frustrated. And you know, little things like, oh, what's the point? My wudu doesn't count because I can't, you know, put my foot in the sink and clean my toes or whatever. Or I can't make proper Sajood. You know, I haven't made sidda in like, you know, in, in eight years properly. I haven't put my head on the floor. So to me it's like, well, I'm not even, and people when you hear things like, Oh, well, you know, you're closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you do Sajood and I'm like, whoa, well there you go, I'm out of the picture. Right? Or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invites those to Umrah or Hajj and I'm not able to go, so I feel like I went to Umrah when I was two in two thousand and two and I haven't been able to go back for physical reasons. Wallahi, I feel like I'm boycotted from, from Makkah and Medina. Like in my heart, when people go, oh, I'm going to Umrah or Hajj, I'm like, it's like Allah has boycotted me from his house. So, and it, it's very painful. So those type of emotions, when you're alone and you're not talking to people, it adds up in you and shaitan reinforces it yeah. over and over and over. He, it, there's not a point where you feel like you're accepted in this deen. right? So in your mind... If, if this is the 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 qualifications for islam and i can't meet them then islam cannot be the perfect religion right logically if it doesn't fulfill all the needs of all the followers of the world then it can't be perfect that's that was because of the lack of knowledge that i had at the time it was not until about 3 or 4 years ago i actually came to a comfortable level with allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you know it wasn't even on purpose it was a very it was an important and very it was a milestone in my life where i was depressed to the point where i wanted to die now i'm not suicidal i'm not going to go drink Clorox or something like that uh, i'm mean, i'm a coward you know i'm not going to go do stuff like that uh, and I, I and i was i'm not an atheist that needs to be very that has to be cleared up too it, i was not an atheist i believed in allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the existence of allah i just thought i was not in the favor of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yeah. so i'm thinking you know i kind of separated from all types of ibadah at that time and I was talking to my mom and I was so depressed. I was so depressed. I had a I mean I had a beautiful family, had everything going for me, and I was still sad every day. And I was crying. I'm I'm twenty seven or twenty six, my you know, my numbers are all off. I remember and I was crying to her and I was telling her, I just wanna die. Like I don't wanna be here anymore. And what's the point? You know, I'm I, 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 I struggle, I struggle, I haven't you know, I pray and I've asked for Shafa over and over again, it's not coming. There's absolutely no light at the end of this tunnel. Everybody else is living their lives. Everybody else is taking vacations. Everybody else is doing what they need to do. And, you know, it, I sometimes get embarrassed at that time to take my son to the park because I didn't want kids to laugh at my son that he had a handicapped father.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, That's it's cool. it's something that would go through my head where shaitan would keep me away from my own child. Be like, you're going to embarrass your son. Don't go to don't go to parent-teacher conference because other children will see you and they'll mock your child. And I would do conference calls instead. You know, alhamdulillah, I've gotten past that, but it was yeah. something in my head. So... I went to my mom I'm like I'm done You know I, I just want him to die. I, I cannot Quote unquote Defeat Allah And uh, he's beaten me And I, I can't do this anymore And I just want to die And I want him to take my life And she looked at me And this is something That I will never forget She said That is probably The most arrogant thing I've ever heard in my life And I was like You know How is this arrogant In any manner I'm telling you I've lost So <laughs> how is that arrogance You know I just want Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala To take me and just be done with me. And she said, because you think you're going to go to Jannah when That's you die. Very well, very well. So my mom the entire time is thinking, you know, I'm watching you, you know, and I'm seeing that you're not praying, you're not fasting the way you're supposed to be fasting. Uh, You know, I was just not eating, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and all that you could just see that you're not doing things to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And ultimately, this is not the life we aspire for. And that when we die, there's Jannah or Jahannam. And it was not, I'm sure it wasn't easy for her to say that, but she was being very real. And she said, you're going to go, pretty much you're going to go to hell if you keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And to me, I was like, all right, if I have to deal with hell here, I'm not going to have to deal with hell there. Mm-hmm. So I just started doing the general, pray, trying to pray five times a day, you know, doing whatever I can, listening to lectures, reading a little bit of Quran. I actually went back to... Uh, the alphabets of the Quran, learning the letters and, and the pronunciations with one of my friends, and going through that from the, pretty much grassroots, just coming from the fundamentals of Islam, and I started reading Quran more. And from that moment, something happened. Subhanallah. I don't, I can't put my finger on a specific date or time, but I started reading more and I started liking Islam more. And then there was an ayat, I believe. Uh, please correct me if I am wrong. In Surat al-Furqan, was talked about ibad al-Rahman. The people who Allah loves. And one of them is someone who genuinely fears Jahannam. And I was like, whoa, so you're saying I have a chance. You know, <laughs> there's a chance that for me to go to Jannah too. Allah can love me just because I fear the Jahannam. And after that, when you start listening to more lectures and you start seeing the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which were always there from the beginning. I just didn't take the time to learn. And when I started to learn more about the prophets and the Sahaba. Uh, salam, I started learning about them. I started learning about the struggles of Rasulullah himself. I mean, you and you know that these were the most beloved people to, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that made me feel a little bit better about myself, you know, at the end of the day, subhanAllah. So with knowledge and with a little bit of, I guess, patience in the sense where I was trying to gain a, more un- a little bit of more understanding towards the deen, I get closer to it.
1: Who, who, who gave you the most inspiration from all the Sahaba you studied and the, the prophets and their lives you studied? Who gave you the most resolve?
0: Wow. You know, to me, it's a very interesting question because it changes every time I learn about a new Sahaba. <laughs> right? Awesome. So like every time you hear about a Sahaba, you're like, wow, you know, that that, that was awesome. Or I, I feel like I'm just that way. And I think there are two Sahabi that really got to me. From a, from a spirituality standpoint, and from an accepting standpoint, it was Ammar bin Yasir. and I'll, I'll expand on that. And then from a action standpoint, it was uh, Abdullah bin Amr bin As, right? Because one, let me go back to Ammar bin Yasser was someone we all know his story. His parents were martyrs; uh, they were tortured by Abu Jahl and his his clan. They died in in Mecca, and Ammar bin Yasir himself was tortured and in that torture in that time of distress he and i don't know the exact words he used but he denounced rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam i believe he even called him a liar even though in his heart he didn't believe it but it was just he went through so much at that time he had to free himself from that torture yeah and he was and he ran through the streets of makkah after he was freed and abu jahl was the one the greatest enemy of islam at the time and he was bragging about getting one of the Closest Sahaba, one I mean, the earliest Sahaba to say this about Rasulullah, and so, and then you hear about the stories of Bilal ibn Rabah, who was everyone is praising, right? So imagine just being in those circles of Sahaba later in Medina, and and even in after Fathih, Makkah and people are talking about those days. You can naturally say that people praised Bilal ratanhu right, for his strength at that time. Now, if Ahmad ratanhu right, is sitting there, can you imagine how he felt psychologically that he at that moment? didn't have the same, maybe he broke down. Allah but it But how can a human being not be affected by that? And for me, for the things I said about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the things I said about the the, the faith of uh, Allah, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the deen of Allah and, uh, and the Ummah of Rasulullah Wasallam, and I said all these things and I never had that reassurance even to today while I pray. The reason I cry is because of those words I said years back against my Lord. Yeah. And I can't imagine that Ammar bin Yasser ever got past that point I mean I'm sure he did because you have to believe in the faith of Allah and the mercy of Allah but at the same time Rasulullah <laughs> just hearing about how much he prayed uh, praised I'm sorry Ammar bin Yasser. it gave it, I kind of put two and two together myself now I'm not a scholar but I'm saying I'm Rasul was perfect and he understood that Ammar needed this He needed me to tell him over and over again that don't worry, you're good. I love you. I love you. And not only to him, but publicly announced it so many times. And he was a prominent Sahaba that was really loved. The other Sahaba I mentioned was Abdullah bin Amr bin As, who was the son of Amr bin As. And he came to Islam late. I think he came in either the 7th or 8th year of Hijrah. He joined uh, the, the Muslims. And it was before his father, if I'm not mistaken. But he was doing so much to catch up to the other Muslims. And he was just doing more and more when it came to fasting and recitation of Quran. Like he would, and in Turaqa, he would, you know, read the entire Quran, or he got, in his, in his, I don't remember the exact narration, but his wedding night, his, when his wife was following him in Turaqa, <laughs> he read, I think, the all this Baqarah, Ali Imran. Like, he read a very extensive, you know, the rest of us reading, like, Surah Ikhlas and Surah Nas, you know, but he read all these very long surahs. He he just wanted to catch up to the rest of the Sahaba. Yeah. And it was a lot of those amazing hadith that we hear and are all amazing about slowing down and taking your time. That comes from uh, Abdullah bin Amr bin As's interaction with Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So, I, I, I'm always, because I look at you guys, mashallah, I look at all my other friends, and I'm like, man, they, the the prime years when you're twenty twenty one and you're learning about deen, you know they had that me I lost it because I was dealing with my own test and my my psychological breakdowns at that point so I'm trying to catch up to everybody else so even when I'm talking about Islam I get very excited like I'm a, like a five year old you know and other people like you know we already know this <laughs> you know yeah we know there's five prayers a day Omar, you know like <laughs> I'm getting like very excited about little things and subhanallah they you know that's do the two sahaba that I would probably relate myself most to when it comes to their individual struggles and definitely not their virtues yeah no and and you is that
2: where your passion for uh islamic history i mean history in general you're very passionate about history but is that was that the birth of your love for islamic history and i'm pretty sure that's what helped you cope with a lot of stuff because if you have a passion about something and you excel in it it helps you a lot um coping with that stuff right so is that is that basically how you got so passionate about history?
0: Well, one of the things that I, I that helped me move forward is understanding the lives of the prophets. Now, why is that important? It's just like it's important to go to uh, programs where you're talking to other people with disabilities or similar challenges. When you learn about other people's struggles and their lives, you and you start relating to them. It makes you feel more normal, if that if that's a word. You you feel more normal in the sense where you're not alone and when i heard about i mean for me the story of yusuf alayhi salam and ayub alayhisalam were so moving for me it's particularly ayub alayhisalam and we you know there's not a lot mentioned about him in the quran there is uh, a lot in the in the hadith and israiliat that talk about him but just the challenges where everything was taken from him and through his patience everything was given back And, 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 not only just given back like in equal levels, it was given back on, it was multiplied. And one of the things that I've heard, and I, I don't know the narration of this exactly, so Allah, you know, if it's authentic, but he was afflicted by, you know, some some challenges, but, but being tested by Allah (laughs) subhanahu wa ta'ala, and his, his wife had said, why don't you make dua to Allah to, to cure you, to, to, to free you of these tests? He goes, I was, I had all these blessings for X amount of years. Let's just say he had blessings for 30 years. He goes, it wouldn't be right for me to ask to be relieved of these tests unless I was tested for at least 30 years. So. For it to be even. And I started asking immediately. Like, as soon as I got diagnosed, I'm crying. I'm, I'm getting mad. I still remember I was making door out for like four months and I'm like, oh, Allah's not listening to me, and I gave up. But then you hear the story of Nuh salam, who did Dawa for 950 years, right? And like, wow. oh my God, wow, right? So when you, the, I think the important thing is when we learn about it is to kind of we we can't just sit there. This is the problem that we go, oh, that was the prophets, or that was the sah- they were sent as examples. That's why we need to make these correlations. Yeah. They weren't angels, exactly. And one of the things that even I'm maybe going off topic, but a lot of the, the, the in the Christian faith where they kind of brought the prophets down to their level. They said, you know, they found Noah drunk in a cave or they saw Luke do, you know, other yeah. things, right? They, they say, hey, see, they're just like us and we are allowed to do, you know, bad things because the prophets did bad things, you know? Yeah. And for us, we have to think the exact, we can get, we can try to aspire to that level. We'll never get there, but that's purely because they were chosen to be prophets. But we have to go the other, we can't, we're not, no way are we ever, inshallah, going to bring our prophets down to our level, but that doesn't give us an excuse to stay where we are. And, And you know what the beautiful thing
2: about what you mentioned is that, yes, the prophets, they've been through many sicknesses, they've been through many trials, they've been through many tribulations, but... What amazing hadith that just uh, came to mind as soon as you mentioned that is in Sahih al Bukhari, there's an amazing hadith that actually describes what you were going through at the age of 17 and in that phase where you're mentioning age of 26, is in Kitab al Marda, which means the uh, the book of, of sicknesses or the book of patience, meaning not patience of, of, of being patient, but being a patient, like visiting a doctor, right? It's called the book of patience. And Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentions an amazing hadith. He says something where he says, Uh, And I'm paraphrasing, because I don't have the hadith memorized. But he mentions that if, because of the severity of your sickness, you wish death upon yourself. And the reason why he mentions that is because sickness is get so severe, the human, by default, he's going to ask for death because it gets so severe. And Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam understands that. That's why he's saying in such a generous way. Then he says, say this dua, Allah, give me life back to me. Right, and I can't remember the exact hadith, but uh, we can put in the description, inshallah. But the reason why he's mentioning that is actually human nature to think of death when something gets so severe. And you actually want death. How many times we hear people on surgical tables when they're like, you know what, just kill me, just kill me because I can't take the pain anymore, right? And Muhammad Wasallam, he's letting us know, yes, the prophets, they didn't think like that, but we understand because Allah put us as prophets through trials and tribulations. So when you do think of death because that's going to cross your mind and it may be natural, Right then you ask Allah to give you life again, right? So that's something that if anybody actually is going through any trials and tribulations and you're asking you know, Allah to give you death, number one, you should know, it's not that far-fetched for a human being to think that way, but you should obviously never do that dua again or you should never put yourself in harm's way to cause death, obviously, Allah. and may Allah protect us all. Amen. But um, that's something that is the beautiful thing about the prophets. They went through all the trials, but they never asked for death. But... When Muhammad Sallallahu was telling his Ummah about trials, he told them, "I know you guys are going to ask for death, but don't do it. <laughs> and if you do do it, ask Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala to give you life again." Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, man. So it's it's uh it's crazy how everything works out, you know.
1: Omar, I want to close this podcast. Uh, what are some things that uh, everyday Muslims can do to help Muslims? They might not be handicapped, but what can they do to help other handicapped people around them?
0: Well, Mosin is one of some, there are other groups that are helping those that have disabilities. So get involved wherever you can get involved. And number one is trying to create, do your part. Now, what I mean by that is everyone when they're rushing to the Masajid to do jama'ah or they're trying to get somewhere, everyone thinks that their objective is the most important objective. Hmm. And we all have that. It's not just, you know, people that are not, disabled other people are like that as well people that with special needs are like that as well at least i am we need to stop for a minute and say i can't park here because i'm not disabled or i can make this difficult for somebody else even though i might miss a raka of Juma, i can't leave my shoes here because somebody not just with disabilities but elderly might fall and can't get to where they need to get to that's the number one thing stop for a second we live in a world that's moving so fast But the ultimate destination is Yom Al-Qayyamah (laughs) and death. You know, we're not going to surpass that. That's going to be the end of it for all of us. We need to slow down for one minute. And I know that's a little bit of a a broader answer, but the reality is that's where it starts, when we start thinking of other people. Mm. And then the other thing is more fighting and standing with other organizations that they don't need to be Muslim. One of the things Muslim is participating in is the Autism Speaks Walk in Chicago, which is not a Muslim organization it is um, i just looked at the list a few hours ago hundreds of people are part thousands of people are participating hundreds of groups and they're all different denominations and all different types of people we need to get integrated with the world we got to stop this only with muslim stuff yeah. and you know what that means go to synagogues go to churches go to temples and find out what are they doing to make their places more inclusive what 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 technologies are available learn i mean yeah. Rasulullah he also learned from Salman al farsi what uh, what with, with the battle of khandak right that was a persian way of fighting or a strategy it yeah. wasn't it was it was foreign to the arab meaning it's nothing wrong with taking advice from people that are not of the same religion, religion culture or background the it, another aspect of it is that going back to the original thing, I feel the people move in the direction of their imam. If your imam is talking about this on the pulpit, then people are listening to it. I can stand up or roll up and say, (laughs) you know, this is what you guys need to do and they're going to be like, well, you're not important. Like maybe I mentioned a bunch of hadith here, a bunch of maybe some ayahs and someone's going to be like, listen, you're not a scholar, so... I'm automatically negated that he probably doesn't know what he's talking about. We got to look up, see how authentic it is. Yeah. But if a, if an imam is saying this, it's something that it really touches the heart. Because the reality of it is that the imams that become more sensitive to this and start talking about it more, they're helping develop a Muslim, their character. Yeah. Because at some point in our lives, we're de- dealing with someone that's disabled. I'll give an example. Either an infant or an elderly person.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? There's a point where a child can't talk. A point where a child can't walk, a point where a child can't feed themselves, and you're dealing with it, right? There's a point where adults stop, then your father and mother become not, I hate to use this word, but they become a burden on you at some point, right? Financial burden on you, because it's not easy to take care of them, they get sick, their medicine, they can't walk, they can't go to the bathroom, they're, they're you know, they, they can't function anymore, and you're helping them. So when the community starts to develop a mentality, not just towards special needs, but just caring, then it affects everybody. Then children become more inclusive. Then adults become, uh, elderly become more inclusive, and innately people with special needs become more inclusive.
1: Omar, what's uh, what's the best way to reach out to Musen? Uh, are they nationwide or just uh,
0: nationwide? Um, yeah, uh, info at uh dot org uh, is their is the email address. You can go to mo- Mohsen dot org uh, for their website. They're on all social media. They have a YouTube page. One thing I would tell everyone to do is go on their YouTube page and check out. The, the, the speech was given at the dinner last year by Sister Sarah who is a sister that has been tested with blindness and she is doing amazing work out there Musikamani gave an amazing speech on Surah Ad-Duha please check that out and all, all, anything that you can start learning you start seeing the different pictures from the projects that are taking place that Muslims involved in and really just if you're an imam at a masjid every masjid has a distribution list an email distribution list Send out the link. Reach out to Mosin. Get certified, and we will try our best, inshallah, as a group, as a volunteer group, to help move it along. Um, however, it's something that people need to be willing to do, and and Mosin is we. Would, I, I can't speak for the entire group, but I know one thing: it's catching fire, alhamdulillah, and volunteers are needed. And the more enthusiastic, active volunteers you have in any organization. Okay. It's going to
1: flourish. Yeah, I saw be. I saw an MSA National speech just recently on YouTube, and there were sign language interpreters, and it was, it was really heartening to see uh, that the Muslim community is actually taking the special needs uh, initiatives more seriously. Yeah. And uh, Mohsen is spelled M-U-H-S-E-N, right? Correct.
2: M-U-H-S-E-N, yes. Correct. And what's their website?
0: It's uh, but, www.mohsen.org. org. Okay. So, um, yeah, that, that's it. JazakAllah khair again, guys. Oh, for, no, for the thank you.
1: JazakAllah khair, Rosie, for having taken the time and coming and speaking with us. And yeah, uh, you continue to be an inspiration in everyone's lives, whether you know it or not. You propel all of our imans every time Mashallah we meet you and you, you help us tackle the next trial yeah yeah, everything
0: yeah uh, i think uh just one one thing before i leave if anyone ever feels a need to reach out or need to speak to someone reach out to them in they know where to get you know to to get to get a hold of me and inshallah you know they'll they'll get me in touch and uh if you're ever in a conference meeting stay (laughs) by the door Uh, for anyone interested in uh, in sending us a letter or writing to us, uh, you can reach us at dmadmamluks uh, at gmail.com. T-H-E-M-A-D-M-A-M-L-U-K-S at com. We also have a Twitter and a Facebook handle at dmadmamluks. Uh, Jazakallah khair for listening. So so like, Salamu alaykum.